Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. A little bit later, the United Way of the Bluegrass is facing a shortfall of about $500,000. It could mean cuts to agencies that deliver services to people. Bill Farmer, who heads up the United Way, will be joining us shortly. But first, the Kentucky Lottery turned 30 years old this week. A lot of people have won big over the years and a lot of money has been turned over to the Kentucky Treasury, mainly for education. The lottery started April 4th, 1989, after then-Governor Wallace Wilkinson had made it a cornerstone of his 1987 campaign. Over the years, people have scratched and played their numbers, and about $3.5 billion has gone to Kentucky education. How have things changed over the years? What does the future of the lottery look like? Joining us this morning is Chip Polston from the Kentucky Lottery. Welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. We were talking, even you have history, and that you started out doing the draw show. Everybody That's I, I was the good night and good luck guy for 13 years. I answered a classified ad in the Courier Journal on a dare from some friends, and 27 years later, here I am. No, so. a, it has been a, a lot of fun. What a, what a history, really, uh, that the lottery has had these uh, these 30 years. It really is. And when you consider, you know, even going back to what you talked about earlier, I well remember the 1988 gubernatorial race when a bookseller from Lexington who had no political experience whatsoever ran for governor basically as you remember on the sole platform of vote for me and I'll bring you a state lottery and he won right he won his ads were just saying I'll bring you a state lottery that that, that was be, yeah. literally the yeah. thing that he pushed forward and it was fascinating because I had a chance to talk with Jane Bashir a couple years ago and uh, we laughed about the fact that the lottery had kind of cost Steve Bashir his first shot at the governor's sure. man because he, he lost in the primary yeah. to Wallace Wilkinson as a result of that. And now 30 years later, here we are. Right. Well, you set this up well because we you provided us a video right. of the, the coverage that we did on that very first day uh, of the lottery. And uh, Barbara Bailey uh, introduced me and we talked to Governor Wilkinson mm -hmm. on that day and he was very excited. Let's take a look at that. In his lottery luck at the Kroger store at Garden Sign. Let's check in live with Bill Bryant, who's with the governor. Bill? Barbara, this first day of the lottery has been reminiscent of uh, Governor Wilkinson's campaign for the state's highest office back in 1987. One of the most memorable promises, of course, Governor, of that campaign was this lottery. Are you pleased no with day one? No question about it. And I said today we've been all over this Commonwealth, and I have never seen the excitement across the state as I've seen today, except during that primary time. The people fought for this lottery, they wanted it, they worked for it, and today they have it. You know, occasionally the people win one. Do you think uh, people generally feel good about buying these lottery tickets? I think they feel good about it, they're enthusiastic, they want to keep Kentucky dollars in Kentucky. Seventy percent of the people across this Commonwealth have waited for this lottery. There, of course, was debate about the lottery, and one of the things, let me play devil's advocate just a bit, was that uh, some people would buy that instead of things they needed, that it was uh, regressive in some ways. Do you fear that uh, could be a problem? I don't because I think it's fairly well established across the country that that has not been the case, uh, Bill. Those that would do that will find something to spend the money on anyway. And uh, I think that that probably is not the case. And I think the enthusiasm and the excitement about this lottery across the state are going to help our children and our senior citizens. And I hope we'll be uh, responsible enough to spend the money that way. Will you be involved in promoting the lottery beyond today? How do you keep this excitement going? I don't know. The excitement level is very high today. I want the lottery to be successful. The people across this Commonwealth want it to be successful. And to that extent, I'll do whatever it is they need me to do. 
the late Governor Wallace Wilkinson and uh, and uh, and that guy. <laughs> also, <laughs> everybody back in the day, everybody looked a lot younger, <laughs> didn't they? <laughs> well, we were, Chip. <laughs> we were right. We looked a lot younger. Uh, let's talk great. about how the landscape uh, has changed uh, over these uh, over these years. And of right. course, that again, that uh, at that time the jackpots were lower. You're just getting started. Oh my gosh, we launched with two tickets, and that was innovative. That yeah. was considered groundbreaking. That we had not one but two tickets that was out there. And it was fascinating going back and watching all this news coverage about the people, Bill, that won the top prize of $2,500 that day. Really? And how much excitement there was about it. And then about uh, probably two years later, the old Lotto Kentucky game got up to a $10 million jackpot. And that was a huge story. It led every newscast above the fold in the newspapers. And it's fascinating now to think that 30 years later, you can play for $3 million on a scratch-off ticket, and not too long ago, for two bucks, you could be in the running for $1.5 billion. The landscape has certainly changed. You know, it's very interesting in that there has always been the question, where does the lottery money go? Sure. And, and early on, it was state law that you couldn't tell them where it went. It literally was built into the, our operating statute. We were the only lottery in North America that had or has ever had what was called a beneficiary advertising restriction where we could not promote the programs where our funding actually went. That was overturned about four years ago via the state budget bill, and fortunately, uh, we've been able to, to tell that great story ever since. That's when we started using our Fueling Imagination Funding Education tagline. So being able to tell that story has been very helpful. And generally, that money has gone to, to education. It has, right? it has. Initially, it was interesting. When, when Wallace Wilkinson ran for governor in the primary, he ran commercials that showed these bright, shining elementary school faces of kids in school, and they talked about the proceeds going to elementary education. But when the rubber met the road, and the General Assembly had to decide where to put that money, they decided that it should go into the general fund. There was concerns about the stability of funding and whether or not we would be able to maintain those dollars. So really for the first 10 years, we were either general fund or something else. But 20 years ago, uh, starting uh, in this, this, this last year, 20 years ago, our proceeds started going to college scholarship and grant programs. It's been dedicated there ever since. Just in those programs, $3.2 billion uh, have gone to those scholarship and actually $3.4 billion have gone to those scholarship and grant programs. Overall, over the 30 years, $5.2 billion. Those are with B's, billion dollars you've been able to turn over to the Commonwealth. That's something we're awfully proud of. And do education entities tell you that that is an important part of their, their Oh, funding? absolutely it is. When you look at the fact, Bill, that 95 cents of every dollar of student aid awarded by the Commonwealth of Kentucky comes straight from the sale of Kentucky lottery tickets. It's a big deal. We're the 100% funding source of the Key Scholarship Program. Every dollar ever awarded in Key's money has come straight from lottery tickets. And the reach of this has been broad. One in five Kentuckians, one out of every five people in the Commonwealth now, has received a college scholarship or grant from us over the last 20 years. So the numbers are impressive and we really feel it has made a difference. What about that question that I put to, to uh, Governor Wilkinson now? 30 years ago uh, on that very first day. What safeguards are there sure. to be sure that people uh, don't uh, spend beyond their right. means from I, the lottery? Again, to go back and looking at the news coverage from 30 years ago, there were several stations that went to communities where that hadn't voted for the lottery. There were a handful of them that were there. And there was maybe one retailer in this entire county, and it was because the community had banded together and said, we're going to boycott any store that sells lottery tickets. There was a gentleman that said, I'll never shop at a Kroger again because they're selling lottery tickets over there. Well, three decades later, 
I, the, the, the landscape has changed dramatically. I think gambling has become much more a part of the fabric of the Commonwealth, that people are much more comfortable with it. From the perspective of, the, of problem gambling, we were one of, if not the first lotteries in the U.S. to establish a Play Responsibly program. We're a founding member of the Kentucky Council on Problem Gambling. We've done a lot to make sure everything is good there. What's interesting in terms of safeguards that you talked about is that the online status, being able to gamble via your computer and being able to gamble via your phone, those are actually some of the most responsible ways that you can gamble because we can set throttles on that. We can control how much money that you spend on those platforms, whereas at a retailer we can't. So while technology may seem a little scary to folks in that realm, it really does give you the ability to be more responsible because we can control how much you spend on that. Chip Polson is with us from the Kentucky Lottery celebrating 30 years this week. We're coming back with that and then a little bit later the United way of the bluegrass with some challenges right now. Keep it here. We're coming right back. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Uh, some interesting revelations about the uh, Kentucky Lottery, which celebrated its 30th anniversary this week. And I know you were around the state, uh, Chip Polson, right. uh, talking with a lot of people, and uh, it was an exciting week. It really was. Uh, you know, when you look back on it, it was such an unknown because uh, the ramp up to this had been probably over at least a year and a half, going back to the gubernatorial primary to execution. And really the only gambling you had in Kentucky at that point was at Churchill and Keeneland. That was it. Now every single county in Kentucky had a place where you could go and, and buy a lottery ticket. So it was a sea change moment. At that time, you know, a lot of Kentuckians were going over into Ohio, Ohio. other states that had the lottery. Right. Then for many years, we had the advantage of the fact that Tennessee had no lottery. Exactly. So for many years, those retailers down on the border did some big business. That exit zero there on 65 coming yeah. right across the border. The, the running joke used to be there was a place down there called the boot shop that you would go into and they had on the counter about a dozen pair of boots with about a quarter of an inch of dust on them and five lottery terminals in the front and you would go in the parking lot and it was just Tennessee license plate after mm -hmm. Tennessee license plate. Tennessee wised up and finally got a lottery and we saw a dip in sales that next yeah. year. It definitely had an impact, but we've been able to grow those back. We offer some games now that Tennessee does not offer. So as a result, we've started to see more people coming back across again, not only there at 65, but down the Fort Campbell area. We get a lot of folks across I as well. I remember at I-75, uh, there at exit 11 Williamsburg, where my hometown, right. I remember, uh, there were times they would actually run charter buses from Knoxville. <laughs> Like if people would get on wow. a, a lottery bus and, yeah. and, and, and come up and, and buy tickets. Sure. Well, especially when, when we started selling out. Powerball. When that game started, we really saw the cross-border traffic. So what drives participation? And is it when the jackpots get really big that people get more interested? Sure. The jackpots getting big does get people interested. But what we've seen, Bill, is something called jackpot fatigue, where basically it takes larger and larger amounts for people to really get interested. I remember the first time there was a $100 million Powerball jackpot, and it was huge. It was really, really big news. People now tend to wait until it gets into about the 300 or $400 million level before we really start to see the sales start to spike. And you talk to people about it. Keep in mind, Powerball and Mega Millions, the lowest amount of money possible in a jackpot in those games is $40 million. And you talk to people about it, and they'll say, I'm going to wait till it's real money. You know, <laughs> they, they couldn't use that, right? What you, what you couldn't do with $40 million, <laughs> right. you know. But when people are accustomed to buying tickets in a jackpot game that a couple times has been over a billion dollars, 
it's hard to come back and sell that $40 million yeah. ticket for the same $2 wager the next Although day. Well, I think one of them in the, in the shadow of the big jackpots and the other one was hit and it, it went like from 40 to 50 and then back to 40. Yeah, because it, it was, it, it's it, the, the, the sales after that drop, there is a it's a hangover yeah. is what we look yeah. at. It, yeah. it really does happen after a big jackpot. Uh, a lot of retailers have made some good money over there. They the really have. We've got more than 3,000 retailers all across the Commonwealth of Kentucky and the proceeds to those retailers, about $1.2 billion have gone to those retailers. A lot of those are mom and pop shops that when you talk to them, the lottery is not only a great means for them to, to generate revenue by sales, but it's increasingly difficult when you consider about 87% of our tickets are sold within 100 feet of a gas pump. Getting people to come in from the gas pumps to come into a C store is increasingly difficult. Lottery is one of the big drivers to bring those people in. What safeguards do you have in place at those locations sure. to be sure that you know that, that, that the, the tickets are handled honestly? Right, right. So every transaction that's taken care of at a retailer is logged back into our computer systems in Louisville. So every time a ticket is scanned, every time a play slip goes into that ticket, everything that's sold through there. Every single keystroke and every single transaction is registered back at our computer headquarters in Louisville. And we have staff that literally sit during the course of a day and look for anomalies. They look for irregular caching patterns. They look for irregular play patterns to make sure that everything's okay. And then if they see an issue, we can send an investigator out to check it out. And so occasionally you do. Occasionally we do. And we've actually done some operations in Louisville and around the state where we've sent folks out with uh, tickets to see if retailers are doing what they're supposed to do with winning tickets. And about a month ago in Louisville, we had three felony indictments handed down against retailers who weren't doing what they were supposed to. The scratch-off tickets, uh, you know, bring their own form of entertainment. Right. For, for one thing, there's, there's just the physicality of doing that that sure. is entertaining for some. Uh, do you, uh, you know, find the need to introduce new games often? Is that well, it, again, when we launched, we launched with two games. Yeah. Now we'll have anywhere from 60 to 70 in the, the context of the, the marketplace mm -hmm. over the course of the year. And Bill, when you think about it, 30 years ago, you bought a ticket, you scratched off the latex, you saw if you run a prize. Now, 30 years later, you buy a ticket, you scratch off the latex, you find out if you want a prize. It's difficult to repackage that sometimes because it's the same it's the same base that we've been building on now for 30 years. So you find different ways to brand them, you find different play styles that are in there. There's a reason when you go to Target, there's 20 different types of toothpaste. Toothpaste is, is toothpaste, but you find different ways to market it. Same sort of thing with lottery games. But you know, this is a very high-tech world, and right. so people, as you, you noted earlier, they're, they're on their phones now, and they like right. to do these kinds of applications in sure. that way. What's the future look like? The future that is going to be interesting. We're up against a couple things right now. Right now, the Trump administration has made a change in the Wire Act that could potentially eliminate some of those internet sales. There's, that's currently tied up in courts right now, so we don't quite know where that is, but there's some, some things going on there. What's interesting is that when people do try to buy a lottery ticket online, quite honestly, it's not an easy proposition. It's not like signing on for an Amazon or a Netflix account. Due to uh, federal money laundering legislation and the like, we have to identify who you are. We have to make sure that you're not laundering money. We also have to do age verification to make sure you're over the age of 18. We do geolocation because if you're across the river in Indiana, or across the border in Tennessee, we can't sell you a ticket over there. So there's a lot of technology that goes into it, but the players that are on there have really, really seemed to enjoy it. If you'd have told me 20 years ago, 30 years ago even, that we'd be walking around with these little computers uh, that we could access anywhere that we wanted to with no wires attached to it and buy lottery tickets, I would have thought you were nuts, but it's where we are. Well, if you told any of us that, right? At exactly. The, at that time. Yeah. Uh, you're keeping an eye on sports betting and, uh, Absolutely. and other uh, gaming issues in Kentucky. Correct, correct. Uh, we have 
have been uh, tapped in a couple of the pieces of legislation mm -hmm. that were introduced but were unsuccessful in this last issue of the legislature to be one of the administering agencies of sports betting. We continue to monitor that. Bill, what we've said all along is we really serve at the discretion of the decision makers in Frankfurt. We're not lobbying or actively pursuing being the entity for sports gambling, but if they want us to do that, we stand ready to do it, but we need that direction from them. Chip Olson, thanks so much for coming over. Appreciate it very Always much. Always good to see thanks you. Thanks for being here. Keep it here on Kentucky Newsmakers, the United Way of the Bluegrass with some challenges right now, and their local leader is retiring very soon. Bill Farmer will join us next. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We're delighted you're here. The United Way of the Bluegrass is facing a half million dollar shortfall. It could be forced to cut funds distributed to about 140 organizations that it helps with their missions. That includes programs that help children, abused women, and the Salvation Army, among many, many others. Joining us this morning to talk about the big challenges is Bill Farmer, who is also retiring this month after 10 years of running the United Way of the Bluegrass. And we just talked about some uh, interesting irony in that we interviewed you a couple of weeks before uh, after you started, and yes. it's a couple of weeks before you leave. That's correct. But uh, this, uh, and we'll talk about your future in just a little bit, but this is a tough situation with this uh, shortfall uh, you're facing. Um, what might have to happen if more money can't, you know, doesn't come in? Well, again, we're looking at how we can continue to raise funds in the marketplace into the community. Um, Clearly, if we don't raise enough money, we'll have to reduce programs, funding to agencies, et cetera. Uh, let me explain to you what, where we are. Uh, several years ago, we created what we called the Big Bowl Goal, which was to allow agencies in the United Way and the community to set aside programs and initiatives to drive more people to greater self-sufficiency. And what we've did is we've made a commitment to funding agencies on a three-year basis which would allow the agency to put together comprehensive programs. While our campaigns were running, we were not making as much money. So what in essence our board decided to do was to continue to pay the agencies and the organizations as if our funding continued as, as promised. And so what in essence has happened is that we've gone to our reserves, we've gone to our investment accounts. And so starting next year, we can't do that anymore. So we actually are going to fund our initiatives and projects based on the amount of money that we raise per, for that year. What factors have led up uh, to the sh shortfall? I mean, are, are fewer people uh, giving it work? Absolutely. Uh, across United Ways uh, in America, uh, agencies, excuse me, um, the organizations are experiencing about a 40, 45% reduction in donors. So it's not just a United Way of the Bluegrass issue, it's an issue across the country. I think you add, and the reason for that is I think the changing demographics. Uh, what you had initially uh, in the workplace were baby boomers who were encouraged by their owners or managers of the companies to participate in the workplace campaign. And now you have millennials and others, and I'm not blaming this on millennials, but what in essence happens is that they want to make their own decisions as to who they give to and how their monies are being used and distributed. And so what we have at the United Way have to do is modify and adjust our programs appropriately to fit this new marketplace. So this one big pool uh, is not maybe working uh, in the landscape anymore. Right? Well, if you think about the original reason the United Way was created, we were called the community chest almost 100 years ago. 
And what it allowed businesses to do was to be able to help raise money for philanthropic organizations. But if you think about products and programs and digital technology today, that's not necessarily the case anymore because if I'm a millennial, or quite frankly as an aging baby boomer, if I want to give to an organization, all I have to do is just go to the website, take out my credit card, and give. And so, so one of the major attributes of United Way isn't as much today as it is as it has been in the in the past. Is another factor the sort of a sudden fundraising situations that come up these days? The GoFundMe's, you know, for a cause that may be a, the cause of the week or or something sure. that, that tugs at the heart in the community. Oh, absolutely. And what it does is it says that we have to be uh, nimble to address issues on a more urgent basis than the traditional workplace campaign. So you're not saying people are. Uh, more reluctant to give. It's just they have a different way of, uh, of how they're distributing their charity. Absolutely, and I think on top of that, what we haven't been able to determine, not, either, not on a local basis or on a national basis, is a change in the tax law. If you recall last year, there was a change in itemized deductions, et cetera. One of the reasons why people give is because of the opportunity for an, an improvement of their own cash flow, um, a reduction in, in expenses. And what we don't know is whether or not people have made decisions to reduce their funding to agencies and to organizations, to United Way, to, because they no longer need a deduction anymore. When will the agencies that benefit from the United Way know where they stand in terms of what they will receive next year? We're still doing the analysis. We're still trying to raise funds. So probably in the next few weeks, we'll have an answer to them. What does the United Way do that, uh, that, that people may not realize it, it, it's doing out there in the community? Oh, excellent question. Again, this goes back to the whole notion of greater self-sufficiency. Uh, What's, what makes Greater Bluegrass Region such a unique area is that we here are dealing with or working with the, uh, the, chronic, the working poor versus the chronically unemployed. So what the United Way and its partnering agencies in the community does is they provide wraparound services. One particular initiative that I think people should be aware of is 211, it's, and I need to say it more slowly. 211, it's a three-digit number that provides health and human services information not only for our partnering agencies, but internal programs. So if a person is hungry or homeless and don't know what to do, if they dial a three-digit number, that will occur. We also, so you get a better sense, is that we also have contracts, we have grants that we receive from the federal government to help offset our expenses. So there are lots of things that are being done in this marketplace, in this community, that behind the scenes that are happening, and so what happens or what occurs is that people are seeing things happen or occur, but they don't know how it's occurring. And it's because we're in the background or other agencies are in the background doing this important work. Communicating that message is it's extremely difficult. It has to be different now than, it, than some years ago, right? As, as you were, you know, you, you alluded to earlier with the, previously, uh, you would bring somebody in, there would be a big group that the employer would uh, get together and, uh, and folks would hear your pitch and decide if they wanted to sign up, right? Sure. And uh, that still goes on. It still goes on. But just not as effective. Well, I think what happens is that you don't have those meetings as often as, as we did before. So what occurs is that you have a, a discussion and then people go back to their computers. What used to occur is that we would provide a pledge form and people would complete the pledge form before they would go back to their desk. Now what's occurring is that people go back to their desk and then they have to enter into the their internal system information. You also have situations now where employees don't have access to computers. 
And so they're either line workers or sh shop workers, and, and their information for their campaign is on the computer. And so they don't feel as comfortable going in and making those adjustments to their payroll accounts, mm -hmm. et cetera. So it makes it just a little bit more difficult than yeah. before. Your advice to your successor as you're getting ready to uh, retire would be what? This is a great community. Um, I'll be honest with you, when I accepted the position here, I thought we would stay five years. Because typically, in the nonprofit world, you need to change voices about every five years or so. Uh, and we've been here for 10 years. Uh, I'm a North Carolinian, a UNC Chapel Hill grad, and despite those <laughs> detriments, the community <laughs> really embraced me from the, st from the very beginning. Your shade of blue has always been a little it's, lighter. It's been a little lighter blue. Uh, and it's always been a point of, of contention from yep. the standpoint of how competitive this community is. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why we went to the Big Bowl goal, because what, we, in essence, we needed to do was to in engender people to do things that, that, quite frankly, they've asked the University of Kentucky's basketball team to do which is to be one of the top organizations in, in the community. And so I would suggest to the person who's coming in is to listen to what's being told to them, him or her, to be responsive, uh, to be nimble, but appreciate the history of the university, appreciate the history of Lexington, and just have a good time. I understand that uh, you know you're going to figure out if you can go home again. Uh, you may be uh, entertaining uh, getting into politics when you I, return to North Carolina. Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in a small town, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. It's in the eastern part of the state, about 60 miles east of Raleigh, 75 minutes from Chapel Hill. And uh, given serious consideration of, of running for elected office, um, I am not retiring, I am reinventing myself. This is my second, or actually will be my third retirement. Uh, my first is with um, Time Warner Cable, mm -hmm. in which I spent 30 years, and now with United Way of the Bluegrass for 10 years. And I think I bring some unique experiences to the table that I can help with my community. Take into consideration that I left uh, almost 40, over 40 years ago. I hadn't lived there on a long-term basis since I was 19 years old. So things have changed, but I think that I can bring something to the community that can be helpful. Well, it'll be a, a very interesting venture, won't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, we want to thank you very much for coming by, and, uh, and thanks for what you've done uh, in the community since you've been here. Well, thank you, Bill. You. Thank you for your support. Thanks to KYC for its support of United Way over the years. It's been a wonderful ride and just look forward to the next stage. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers here on WKYT. We'll see you bright and early on WKYT this morning, this week, and make it a good week ahead.